Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Matt Sandler, Director of the MA Program in American Studies in the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race at Columbia University. He's the author of The Black Romantic Revolution, Abolitionist Poets at the End of Slavery, published by Verso Books in 2020. He gave a virtual book talk for uh, students and faculty at the University of Oregon on November 5th. Sandler also taught literature at U of O from 2011 to 2014. Thanks, Matt, for coming on the show. It's great to see you again. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. So let's start uh, with a simple question. Where did you get the uh, idea for this book? How did you come upon it? Well, I spent a really long time sort of reading into the literature and culture and history of slavery and abolition. And I sort of, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to say. Uh, I spent a number of years thinking that this was really a book about black writers and Edgar Allan Poe. Um, I spent a number of years thinking that this would be a book about the Americas more broadly and black writers responses to slavery. And then during the years, in fact, that I was in Oregon, uh, the sort of second half of the Obama administration and the kind of persistent rise of a kind of white nationalist backlash to him took me back in particular to W.E.B. Du Bois's book, Black Reconstruction of 1935, where he really fulsomely kind of makes the argument that the end of slavery was a revolution. And it occurred to me, and he treats that revolution in particular in kind of political and economic terms. And it occurred to me that the kind of literature and especially the poets that I had been reading from the abolition movement were really expressing what might be thought of as a kind of cultural and ideological content of that revolution. And that felt to me like a story that had not been told and which might tell us something about the way that we live with a kind of uh, sort of melancholic, a sense of melancholic loss about the possibilities of that revolutionary moment, the way that we're kind of still in a state of arrested development as a result of the kind of conflict around slavery. So, so that's, that's how it got started. That, and, and that's kind of where the argument began. So you just mentioned that you were interested in the cultural and ideological content of this revolution. So let's get to where how you got to romanticism but let's get there by let me ask you to give us a quick gloss of the book's title the black romantic revolution sure so one of the things that i noticed in thinking along the lines i just described is that i was reading these this group of poets uh george moses horton francis harper albury alston whitman a, a group that is largely unknown kind of uh, even to careful readers of African-American literature. Um, as I was reading into their work, I started to notice that they were really using the language of, re of revolution that I recognized from the kind of wider ambit of, of the romantic movement sort of around. Romanticism was this movement in aesthetics and philosophy in particular that originated in Germany in the 18th century and then spread throughout Europe and later the colonized world and especially to America in, in the 1830s, 40s and 50s. And so what I came to 
think was that this group of black poets that were working and, and their contemporaries and prose writers too, because some of the prose writers do some of the same things. So Frederick Douglass and Martin Delaney and Harriet Jacobs, they all kind of are working with romantic tropes as well. And it, what I started to feel like was, oh, these people are talking about a revolution on a much grander scale than what ended up taking place or what ended up kind of becoming installed as, as a part of the, the political kind of culture of American life. Um, you know, what, what, you know what, what was gained at the end of slavery what, and the way that historians in particular have talked about it was that, that, you know, the focus kind of has dilated on voting rights and citizenship for black people who had previously been excluded from from citizenship by by slavery, uh, the some historians will say, okay, another possibility that was lost in that moment was it was a kind of economic redistribution, right? So that the the promise of forty acres and a mule, which people will recognize, was never delivered upon, right? Uh, now that's true, and it's an enormous promise that wasn't delivered, as as was the promise of citizenship, which we still see the consequences of. It's kind of incomplete distribution to black and people of color, even in the present. Um, but what I started to wonder and what I started to notice as I was reading these poets was that like their conception of freedom and th their understanding of what emancipation would look like was just much kind of broader and more encompassing than those, than those registers that were simply kind of economic and political. So that they were thinking about, they were thinking about sexual violence uh, which was playing this incredibly important role, both in, in the system of slavery and in the abolition movement protests to it. Uh, they were thinking about the role of nature and the land use. They were thinking about slavery and the plantation as a kind of system of, of land management. And so again, this kind of, there's a kind of contemporary resonance with the unsolved problem or what Eric Foner calls the unfinished revolution. Uh, so I guess those are those are the ways. So the romantic piece, one of the other kind of ways that they were thinking in terms of romantic revolution was that they were expressing that revolution in prophetic terms, so that they saw it as this kind of transhistorical and divine, almost divine kind of uh, happenstance or event, right? And I started to think about the ways that we might kind of take those prophetic judgments on their part more seriously and might wonder about the way those prophecies kind of tell us things about the 21st century. Say a little bit more about this taking those prophecies more seriously. My sense is that there was, there has been a kind of tendency to downplay the prophetic side of, of these writers and you really, you really foreground that. Say a little bit more about that part of the argument. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I guess, it's a moment where I kind of go against, uh, I go especially against the way criticism in romanticism in particular has unfolded over the last couple of decades because it's become increasingly important. It's, it's been seen by uh, critics of romanticism, especially as, as especially important to kind of like take a step back from prophecy to say, okay, this poet is telling us that he or she is able to scan the landscape and in that moment sort of access the workings of God, right? That they can read the book of nature and understand divine intention, right? And academic critics of romanticism in this secular age 
have kind of tended to say, okay, maybe we need to back off of that a little bit. You know, what are they really, this is actually kind of a trick of language. And actually this is about kind of the historical context that was secularizing at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. And I, I found that, that while I understand and appreciate those kind of critical gestures as a part of our secular university culture, I thought it also might be interesting and worthwhile in the case of this group of authors who haven't received that kind of academic attention to actually give it a shot to kind of say, what were these people? What, just, let's just take them on their own terms for just a moment. So that when someone like Francis Harper characterizes the, United, the, the then 19th century United States as a guilty, sin-cursed union that should be shaken to its base by a civil war, but what is that actually? Let's, let's open that one up and think about maybe whether that's true and what, what, it, what, it, what it might mean to kind of to consider the truth of that or to consider what that might have meant to people, you know? Um, that that's that's a kind of that was a kind of animating gesture of the book is to just kind of get into that space where that that notion of you know a revolution as a divine judgment is nigh like what what did it, what did what did that look like and mean for people and how did that resonate with with nineteenth century audiences? So let's talk a little bit about certain specific parts of the argument. So your first chapter, hereditary bondsmen strike the blow suggests that the British romantic poet, Lord Byron's influence on, the, on these black poets was especially significant. So can you give us a sense of that influence? Why was Byron so significant for them? And how complexly uh, they responded to his legacy? Yeah, so Byron was a massively famous you know, English poet of the, of the early 19th century who, um, who attracted readership all over the, you know, all over the world, not just the English speaking world. Uh, and so his popularity among black writers was not unique in and of itself. So that Byron was, you know, kind of invented celebrity in a certain sort of sense. Uh, but he held a particular attraction for black abolitionists and actually for white abolitionists as well as this kind of renegade figure you know, and as someone who travestied, especially models of, of gender performance. Uh, so he, there's this famous line, which you quoted from Byron's poem, Child Harold's Pilgrimage, where Byron is talking to, he's addressing Eastern, Eastern European uh, people that are living in, in servitude. Uh, he's speaking in particular about Albanians in the Ottoman Empire. Um, but he's you, talking about them in the language of slavery, hereditary bondsmen, know you not who would be free themselves would strike the blow, right? And, and the idea of that line is that slavery can't be ended by people from outside, right? That the enslaved person themselves has to find in, in somewhere in their interior, a kind of desire for freedom and act that desire for freedom out somehow violently. Strike and, and the idea of striking the blow takes on this kind of comprehensive sort of metaphorical resonance. In other words, it might mean physically striking a blow, or it could mean, you know, it could mean running away, uh, or it could mean publishing a poem. Uh, and Byron's, so Byron spoke in this kind of abstracted romantic language about liberation, but he was also a person who spoke towards 
the kind of changing gender norms of the end of the 18th and 19th century and who perceived romantic love in these term in the terms of in these kind of revolutionary terms of liberation which had become popular at that moment in the moment of the french and american revolutions and haitian revolution too and so for abolitionists for black abolitionists in particular who in the context of a slave system which had become increasingly defined by sexual violence Byron's protests of freedom in terms of romantic love held this kind of special resonance. So you start to see Byron appear all over the kind of elusive language which abolitionism is using to describe sexual language to a Victorian American culture, which otherwise can't quite talk about it. Um, so that you see Byron show up in, in books like Harriet Jacobs Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, which is, which is comparatively well known now for its account of the kind of sexual predations of, of, of slavery. Uh, so Byron had this kind of complex popularity in the abolition movement. Now then what happens after the Civil War you know, America becomes that much more kind of Victorian in its impulses, both white and black America. Um, and Byron's, Byron's celebrity begins to become much more kind of uh, controversial, let's say. And the great, uh, again, white American abolitionist Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote an entire book about the, about the you know, Byron's kind of crimes against his ex-wife, uh, his adultery. And for African-Americans, who were whose citizenship status was under constant pressure from uh, you know the rise of segregation and Jim Crow, the what was called what's been called the politics of respectability, right? So the idea that that black people need to kind of culturally behave in according to the norms of middle class Victorianisms in order to deserve to, to perform their, that they deserve citizenship, uh, Byron becomes all of a sudden this very dangerous person to you know, express interest in affection for affiliation for. So, so as Byron, the, the, as the radicalism of the abolition movement is kind of disavowed at the end of the 19th century, so too is a kind of black Byronic poetry. Uh, but there are all these ways actually in which you can kind of see it into the 20th century as well. So that like the, like I, I think of blues musicians as having a kind of Byronic character as well. So you, you mentioned in, in that uh, response, the vexed issues of gender uh, for these poets. So let's talk about the fourth chapter, uh, the uprising of women, which studies how Francis Ellen Watkins Harper uh, the poem, the poet of the poem poets that you read, who I think is the most familiar to contemporary readers, right. used her verse and voice to oppose sexual uh, objectification and ec economic exploitation. So, as a way of beginning to talk about that chapter and your analysis of the uprising of women, could I ask you to read uh, Harper's Free Labor, the poem? Gotcha. It's right here. So this is a poem, this poem is entitled Free Labor. Uh, Harper wrote it in the early 1850s. And it is, it comes out of her kind of activism within a sort of arm of the abolition movement called, called the free labor, free produce movement. And their idea was that they should, they, they tried to buy 
they, they, the, the idea was that they would commit not to buying goods that had been produced from raw materials made on plantations. A very difficult kind of political uh, activity. And we can talk a little bit in a moment about, about how that went, but the poem is called Free Labor. I wear an easy garment. O'er it no toiling slave wept tears of hopeless anguish in his passage to the grave. And from its ample folds shall rise no cry to God Upon its warp and woof shall be no stain of tears and blood. O oh, lightly shall it press my form, unladened with a sigh. I shall not mid its rustling hear some sad, despairing cry. This fabric is too light to bear the weight of bondsmen's tears. I shall not in its texture trace the agony of years. Too light to bear a smothered sigh from some lorn woman's heart whose only wreath of household love is rudely torn apart. Then lightly shall it press my form, unburdened by a sigh, and from its seams and folds shall rise no voice to pierce the sky. And witness at the throne of God in language deep and strong that I have nerved oppression's hand for deeds of guilt and wrong. Thanks for reading that uh, wonderful poem. Will you sure. tell us uh, how you read that poem and how it how it fits in the argument of the book and in, in the argument of that chapter? Yeah, so, so first of all, the free produce movement. So the thing with the thing with consumer activist movements in general, and especially with the free produce movement, was that it, it was actually incredibly difficult in the 19th century to acquire basic staples that had not been produced on plantations, right? So that the, the, there's a way in which the kind of difficulty of doing the work of being a kind of activist consumer in this context is what taught the lessons that the movement sought to, to communicate. So free produce itself didn't exactly work. Uh, and very often the people complained actually about how the clothes were uncomfortable and not as nice as the kind that you could get from, from, uh, from, you know, regular stores that, that relied on plantation cotton. But what Harper took from it and she became committed to it very early in her career in the, in the late 1840s and early 1850s. Uh, what Harper took from it uh, was a kind of sense of rhetoric about, the way that slavery, the, the, the extent of slavery's reach and the way that slavery kind of it, it embedded in or kind of congealed in the everyday life of, for instance, the North, where it was understood in that period that, that they were working and living at some distance from slavery. So that free produce was a way of bringing slavery home to kind of Northern middle-class uh, domestic spaces, right? Especially to, to kind of to Northern middle-class women who were doing the work of consumption in the North. Um, and so this idea about the way kind of enslaved labor kind of uh, became objectified in products, right? And the way that women were kind of involved in this process of objectification ineluctably, right? So the, the domestic space, this, this 19th century Victorian domestic space, which was invested rhetorically with all of this kind of spiritual and political energy, right? So 19th century Americans all, you know, the, the doctrine of the spheres kind of the idea was that like, 
middle-class homes were, were responsible for producing good citizens, like good mothers and good cooking and the, 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 you know, the kind of virtues of the hearth, that those were where citizens were made. And so when Harper kind of brings home into these kind of implicitly and politically feminine spaces, the kind of violence of slavery, there, there's a kind of rhetorical power in that, which I suggest kind of mobilizes her work, not only as an abolitionist, but also through the reconstruction and afterwards. So her sense that kind of enforced labor and racism, that it kind of reached everywhere in this kind of, in, in this way that was not quite visible or tangible, except through the context of kind of rhetorical effects like the ones that we see in this poem, right? So the warp and woof, no, you know, it, it's from its ample folds shall rise no cry to God, right? So that the idea is that, is that in the folds of the garment itself, somehow you'll hear the cries of, of enslaved people, right? So this idea that in the system, the system brings that exploitation to us, even if we're in the process of enjoying it, we're still, what we're enjoying is the pain and suffering that, that took place in its production. Uh, so there are all kinds of ways in which this is a kind of feminist, you know, political economic form of protest. But I also really want to draw attention to the kind of pleasure that she expresses in the poem, right? So the way that she, she, she's saying, I have a garment that's free, right? So that this, it, it, in other words, it, 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 there's a kind of weird rhetorical negativity in it, right? So she tells you what it's like to have the enslaved garment where you can hear the, the screams of the people who produced it, but she's also telling you what it's like to have a garment that's produced by free labor and that she's enjoying, visibly enjoying, right? So you also have to think about the kind of the risks and also the excitement of a black woman in public articulating her experience of pleasure in a kind of middle class, in a kind of middle class, like fashion, right? She's talking about how she enjoys fashion, you know? So there's both a kind of erotics in that and also a kind of, again, like, like middle class kind of consumption in it. Uh, so it's a very complicated poem and one, that, and one that's, in, again, incredibly, kind of prophetic or contemporary in the sense that, look, it's a consumer activist movement, right? She's thinking about consumption practices and the way that consumption practices can, can like mobilize us politically in ways that are different from say voting or, you know, protesting or, you know, these other things which we more kind of conventionally associate with, with expressions of political desire. So yeah, it's a very complex poem and one I have a great deal of affection for. Fascinating. So um, let's talk about uh, the fifth chapter, Freedom sure. is an Empty Name. And that chapter talks about how uh, Albury Olson Whitman imagined a collaborative Black and Native resistance. So will you tell us about that argument? Yeah. Um, so Albury Olson Whitman, a way less well-known figure in the book than Francis Harper. Uh, he, Whitman uh, was born in slavery in Tennessee and uh, in, the, in the early 1850s, and so was emancipated by, by the Emancipation Proclamation and ended up in Ohio uh, where he got an education at, um, at Wilberforce University, which was, a, which was a, uh, what we now call HBCU, a historically black college, you know, but which had just recently been founded then. 
Uh, and Whitman went on to work for the African Methodist Episcopal Church as a founder of churches. He would go around the country and, and build churches in newly formed free black communities in the, in the South, especially. And while he was doing that, he was also writing these incredibly elaborate uh, frontier romances in verse. So that he would write these stories of, of the frontier and the characters were the, the, these, these narratives of the big ones always focus on black and indigenous characters. So that he's working kind of in the form of like James, like a James Fenimore Cooper sort of story of these dramatic exploits on the, on the, in, on the borderlands, you know, uh, and, you know, beyond Fenimore Cooper to Walter Scott, right? So that he's thinking about these kind of like, this is, he's writing in the 1870s and 1880s. So he's looking back to this moment, which is, which is kind of now ended, right? And the primary, the primary, um, the big stories that he tells are of border wars that took place sort of 50 years prior to the end of the reconstruction. So he's writing about the 1820s and 1830s uh, about, uh, border wars in the northern Midwest, in kind of Indiana, Michigan, uh, and in Florida. Uh, so against the Seminoles in Florida, the U.S. and the Seminoles in Florida, and then the U.S. and, and the Sauk people in the, in the northern Midwest. Uh, and in particular, uh, in the, like Walter Scott and like Fenimore Cooper, these real historical figures show up. So, so Osceola plays a role in, in uh, in the book he wrote about Florida and Black Hawk uh, plays a role in the book he wrote about, about uh, the Sauk people in the Northern Midwest. Um, and these are incredibly dramatic, kind of like outrageously kind of dramatized uh, stories of, of, of kind of frontier exploits. And they're, they're always predicated or built around uh, what were called captivity narratives. So that there would be some, you know, there would be a community of, of indigenous people who were encroached upon by these evil colonials, you know, and then a kidnapping takes place. And there's, you know, usually a, a, a woman of color is somehow in jeopardy, you know, uh, and there's really kind of multiple forms of captivity, right? So there's, it, there's native captivity and slavery kind of made visible on, on, uh, at the same time. And through the kind of drama of these, actually in a way very kind of, it's, a, it's an old form at that point in the 1870s and 1880s, the frontier romance was already, you know, almost a century old as a form. But Whitman is able to kind of use it to tell a kind of anti-racist and anti-colonial and in a way kind of anti-capitalist story about the encroachments of, of US empire basically. And he does so in a way that was incredibly popular again, I think in a way it had seemed to us against all odds, but it was incredibly popular with black audiences who were facing the kind of enclosures of segregation. So as segregation, this, this, this was like, he was basically the most popular black poet in America in the 1870s and 1880s, just as the kind of spatial constraints of segregation were beginning to come into focus. This is how like Whitman somehow treats that moment by kind of, you know, time warping his audience back to these frontier wars of the early 19th century and thinking about what did it look like 
you know, the, what, what, what did it look like when people were fighting over unspoiled, supposedly unspoiled forest, you know, and what, did, what are the ways that that, those predicaments and the kind of violence of those moments, both, both sexual and otherwise, what did that, what does that tell us? And what, is, what does that activate in uh, black audiences who are thinking in protest of a kind of encroaching Jim Crow that, that had not yet fully come into focus, but which was very much on its way to defining kind of American life at the end of the 19th century. Another completely fascinating argument. So uh, we're coming to the end of our time. Let me, let me ask you about the conclusion to the, the volume. I could keep going forever. <laughs> I know you could. Uh, so the conclusion is, uh, the title of the conclusion is Dreams and Nightmares, which is a quotation from the contemporary rapper Meek Mill. And it extends the purview of your argument into our moment. So why is the work of the Black Romantic poets especially resonant today? Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated question. And, and, um, and it's especially complicated because this work, it, the, the, the body of poetry which forms the core of the book's focus is not widely read. Uh, so it, I, I didn't discover it. it. It has been, you know, it's been listed in kind of bibliographies and concordances and, and sometimes included in anthologies of African-American poetry so that these poets were, were known, but largely kind of ignored by scholarship, right? And not especially widely circulated. And so it's not as though you could say that sort of people have been reading Albury Olson Whitman all these years and then, you know, using his inspiration to kind of produce more contemporary forms of black culture, that would be inaccurate. Uh, but it's, it's been there, you know, and, and it happened. So that the legacy of, of this kind of cultural abolition, this, this black romanticism has been kind of latent, I, I suggest. Uh, in wider kind of scopes of black cultural practice uh, into the 20th and now 21st century. Um, and so, you know, Hortense Spillers has a very useful phrase for talking about this. She says that anybody who studies black culture has to think about its historical discontinuities. Uh, and so that, that this work is in some ways forgotten, but somehow kind of like Ralph Ellison said, kind of a, a broadcast to us on the lower frequencies that, that, requires some kind of rhetorical, you know, agility to get it across. Now that said, like I think I've already mentioned as we've been talking, there are all these ways that the problems described by these poets still haunt us today. Um, and the kind of forms of cultural response, which these poets articulate likewise have kind of continued to, to be a part of black cultural practice, even if, you know, Harper and Horton and Whitman and Simpson don't quite kind of show up in a, you know, don't get celebrated, you know, they don't get celebrated in, in uh, the same way that say Frederick Douglass has. But if you think about, so the poem that I just read, Free Labor, right, it's a ballad. Um, and so the use of kind of, very traditional forms of song to as a kind of vehicle for forms of political protest and political aesthetic practice that might not otherwise find expression like that is characteristic of black culture from its beginnings right and so there are all these ways that that form of that that mode of kind of aesthetic and political practice 
have been with us and have stayed and have stayed as a part of the culture, even if they haven't quite been recognized sort of academically or intellectually as such. Um, and then once you say that, you know, then you can start to kind of look and, and, you know, peek around, right? So that like, if you think about in the, the, in the conclusion of the book, I, I do some pinpointing of these moments, but like, if you think about uh, the crossroads myth, right? So the the idea that Robert Johnson met the devil at, at the crossroads in Clarksdale, Mississippi and sold his soul in exchange for, you know, this extraordinary talent on the guitar, it's a Faust myth, right? I mean, it's a bit, and, and so then that, you know, even if, even if Robert Johnson himself didn't necessarily read Goethe, the, the figure of the myth is still framed in terms of kind of, uh, narrative uh, form that we think of as kind of at least partly European. Now, that's not to say that it's that it's you know derivative or sort of of you know not in itself you know culturally important, and in some ways it's maybe more culturally important. But it's nonetheless a part of a kind of shared culture, uh, and there are all these other kind of instances of that sort of kind of like of inflection back to kind of. Atlant transatlantic romanticism and the moment of kind of abolition cultural practice that the book is is primarily focused on. Well, Matt, I want to thank you so much for taking this time to speak with us today about this incredible book, which I will I will hold up and I will re <laughs> recommend to our Thanks to so our much. viewers to read. Um, it's really been a pleasure speaking with you today. Hey, I really really appreciate you having me, Paul. This is great. Thanks so I, much to you all. And I miss Oregon so much. I'd love to be out there right and now. And we miss you too. <laughs> uh, I've been speaking with Matt Sandler, director of the MA program in American Studies in the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race at Columbia University. He's the author of The Black Romantic Revolution, Abolitionist Poets at the End of Slavery, published by Verso Books in 2020. Thanks so much for watching.